Welcome back to another edition of the Darkest Hour podcast, which takes a loving look at some of the greatest horror films of the past and present and performs a thorough autopsy on them. I am John Evans, and I'm joined by the writer of Devil's Pass, (laughs) which is kicking ass on the internet right now. And he's got another movie in the hopper that I hope comes to you soon. And also the director and writer of Death Metal, which is shooting in the next month or so, Michael T. Kuchak. Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchak, how are you guys doing today? I'm good. I'm awesome. Hang in there, John. I I would like to point out we do a a loving and thorough autopsy on on these films. I feel like that's a, a key adjective. I strayed from the script on that one. Yeah, yeah my improv skills uh, need a little work, but uh, but yeah, yeah, that is that is what we do here, and yeah. we are back to take another look at it. Follows this is the epic conclusion to our two parter, and we're gonna really get into the nitty gritty this time. We took kind of a broader look uh, last time. I if somehow you haven't listened to that one, I would obviously start there. Uh, because we look at the larger themes. And uh, in this episode, we're going to drill down a little deeper and I'm sure wander off into the hinterlands as we are wont to do. So uh, let us kind of pick up where we left off. But we covered the open in a pretty detailed and thorough fashion. Where where do you guys think we should take the baton at this point and uh, carry on? There is a particular shot of Jay after she and Hewitt have had sex and she is on her stomach and sort of tinkering with the flowers in the ground or something. And it was, I think, as I was watching it, there was something about this sudden overhead shot of her hand playing with this flower that I suddenly sort of went, wow, all right, this is, a, this is a director who knows what he's doing. He's finding unusual ways of looking at these things that was the shot where I felt like I wasn't watching a young director competently bring a story to the screen. I was watching an artist who had a vision that he was really going to deliver in a compelling and interesting way. In a lot of ways, I feel like this movie is the work of a young director. Overall, I would say that it has a lot of elements that feel very mature, but it's also kind of it has the pros and cons, the vibrance and the exploration of a young filmmaker, but also like sometimes maybe a few things that perhaps he thought would be more clearly communicated are not, or some of the things that he doesn't quite know how to convey and we get 80% of it, but maybe if he had made three movies instead of one before this one, it would have landed. So, I mean, I think that's an interesting point, but I absolutely love the shot that you're thinking of. And what I love most about it is I don't even really fully understand why I love it or what it's doing, which is, you know, again, maybe part of the point that I just made. Maybe there's some lack of coherency to it, but it's so striking when she's playing with this weed and talking about her aspirations of romance again referring back to childhood which is all of these characters particularly her jay you know our lead but everyone in a way is kind of making this transition from childhood is so vivid in their lives and only now very recently are they being forced to confront adulthood and it's very scary and their youth and their dreams are so very alive for them and she's 
plucked her innocence or her reverie is so ruined in this moment that her hand flops and and slaps this weed and this flower and it just kind of vibrates and then her hand goes limp in front of it and it, it is clearly tremendously symbolic and I, I think i land on it being a, a pro versus a con that the symbolism is not completely obvious but it really it's just tremendously shot and such a fresh image literally that scene the, the bit leading up to it her dialogue in that scene is this wonderful sort of dreamy quality to it you could show me that and tell me it was from the new richard linklater movie and i would believe you right up until the guy chloroforms her you know what i mean <laughs> but that's, yeah that's a, but that's a hell of a thing if you tell me it's a you know you're looking at you're gonna watch 15 minutes of a richard linklater movie and then the boyfriend chloroforms uh parker posey and she wakes up tied to a wheelchair you got my attention oh absolutely and i want to backtrack just a bit in the movie theater when they're playing the the trade game which i believe is somewhat related to the the idea of passing on the curse you know like Mm -hmm. becoming someone else in some way who do you wish you were it's connected but what the guy hugh is going through here and she asks him, who do you want to be? And she expects that he wants to be the dude who's chatting up the really hot chick. And that's kind of where even the camera leads us to. But because of what's actually happening, his, and, and we, it's even funny because we see later his spank bank and, you know, he's, he, you know, his dirty Kleenexes and, and whatnot. He kind of was that guy. But because of this experience, because of this curse, he wants to return to innocence and be a child again. And she guesses wrong twice. Like even her her second guess is that he wants to be the dad. But no, it's it's the little kid that he wants to be. And I noticed that when he looks back and points at the woman that we don't see, the girl in the dress that is it following him did you guys notice that there's two signs visible and one of them is exit and you could assume that the other sign is also exit but it's cut off so it just says it oh that's cool yeah, yeah i hadn't noticed that oh that's fun no, I yeah like this the, the movie is definitely loaded with those types of things i mean the compositions are so carefully planned that it's absolutely chock full of little details that are hinting yeah, I, at, I, at different things. It's kind of like I was talking about last time. This movie does an excellent, excellent job of training the audience as far as the mythology and the experience of dealing with it. You know, in the uh, first scene, we see the the girl and she's running around and we don't see anything. And, you know, we're kind of on the side of the neighbors of being like, what's the matter? What's your problem? We have kind of a progression now is uh, we have this guy is dealing with it, but but he is an active plan for getting rid of it. So it's it's a different shade, but we're still kind of one step along the way of, of training the audience and to, you know, what it's like to have this in your life. So by the time we get to the third beat with the wheelchair, without any real exposition whatsoever, we've already, you know, given everyone a, a fairly solid idea of what's going on. Absolutely. But also in the movie theater, he picks it 
as what she wants to be, which I think is funny, uh, you know, yeah, on some yeah, level. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, he looks yeah. at all these people and he's like her <laughs> and it's it. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing is uh, one of the cooler things about the mythology that goes completely unexplained. It, it can look like anything that it wants to. And he even tells her when she's in the wheelchair, it can sometimes look like someone you love or, uh, you know, a random stranger. And it's very clear that it goes out of its way to pick horrifying images because even though it's slow and deliberate, it's not dumb. There's a malevolence to it. It's it's basically a demon. It's not a zombie. It's a demon. And it wants to get you, but it really wants to fuck with you along the way. And so I think that, um, you know, last time we were talking about uh, there was a little bit of pushback. Uh, some people felt that film wasn't adhering to its own rules. In this case, because he's seeing a girl that is just standing there. I think in this case, it has chosen to just make itself known that it doesn't have to walk all the time, that it can do something horrifying just to, to pluck at your nerves. We don't see another instance in which it just stands there. So I can see why some people kind of bump up against it, but I don't know. It, I just think it's just such a... Well, you, it does in the end when it's throwing, uh, not the end, but you know, in the in the beginning of the third act, when it's throwing the electronics, the, the plugged-in things into the pool and throwing them at her rather than directly entering the pool like you could say well that's a little late to have it change its mo at all and i you know i i understand that but i would say that that is clearly evidence of it doing something other than just monotonously walking towards you uh, i recall that it, it briefly appears as a naked old man standing on a roof mm-hmm it is interesting that a lot of the times its forms are naked or old or decrepit, like the woman who's missing her teeth in a sock. It's not like uh, it always takes a form of like a pro wrestler. I would say that there are a number of is it or isn't it uh, mm. moments in the film where you're like, I see a figure walking towards us. It could be it, but we don't find out whether or not it is. And I would posit that is a distinct consistency to the iconography of its shapes. And yeah. in every instance where it is ambiguous or, or proven not to be it, there is a tip-off. And here it is. It's color. When it is it, it is always in white. Like, there is never an instance in this film where it is wearing a predominantly darker color. It is always wearing some shade of white or naked. And is all the old woman, wait, is the old woman in, in the school, is she, isn't she wearing a blue smock? No, she, sir. She's in a hospital gown. Yeah, absolutely. She is wearing white, my friend. Okay. She, ah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you is, know, there, there, there's a, a nice beat, and uh, when they go to the other school, they're trying to find clues about Hugh, and uh, we get that wonderful uh, 360 degree camera move, and uh, and camera finds it in the far background, or someone who we think is going to be it, but they're distant enough that you don't know. But by this time, the audience has already been trained to look for it. Man, I love that shit. And uh, kind of building on top of that, there's that really funny moment when they catch up with Hugh and they're kind of like having a little powwow in the backyard. And like a girl is walking toward them and Hugh flips his shit. He's like, do you see her? Do you see there? Do you see her? And the other kids are like, yeah, yeah, we see her. Yeah, she's like a it's field like, hockey player. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like by, by this time, they've already 
had enough of this bullshit that they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> yeah, but see, like, she has the tip-offs. Like, there are other colors in what she's wearing and in her look. And the reason I brought it up now, or the segue, is that mm-hmm. after the uh, he leaves the movie theater, he drags mm-hmm. Jay from the movie theater, they're, yeah. they're, she's having a big-ass margarita. And, you know, we, we don't really get any dialogue. But the camera draws our attention to someone crossing the parking lot towards them and moving in that the exact same kind of slow gait that it takes when it's approaching but it's a guy and he's wearing blue and mm-hmm. i think that the film hints pretty strongly that they didn't grab the check and run the fuck out of there like th- this guy would have been there in two minutes but it wasn't really him and i think it i you know back to your point of training the audience we don't even know how this thing works at all at that moment but as an audience member especially in the theater you're like oh that's kind of weird i noticed this guy walking towards them that's kind of just Distracting, You know, you're trying to figure out why they would let this extra be sort of drawing our focus in the background of the shot. And it, it's just part of that training process and the paranoia. Like if you had this thing after you, you know, 99 out of 100 people that you might think could be it are not going to be it. Last time we were talking about this film, we touched on the idea of dread And the wonderful thing about this concept is you can load any innocuous scene with the sense of it just by having uh, someone in the distance walking toward camera. And no no other movie does that. I think that the other sort of larger thing about this, John, because we, we launched this discussion by talking about the forms that it takes. And I had talked last time about the notion of metaphorically is it about old age and death that's sort of constantly stalking us and that sort of thing. And I still think those are those are relevant ideas. No doubt. But more specifically in this in this conversation, I think that the only insight we get about the nature of it is the forms that it takes. And I think that Hugh says something misleading when he says sometimes, you know, it, it takes whatever form it needs to to get close to you. Sometimes I think it takes the form of people you love just to hurt you or just to fuck with you or something like that. Except it doesn't really do that. It only really does that with Greg right. when it takes yeah. the of his mother. The mm-hmm. rest of the time, the forms that it takes are largely just to be horrifying. Yeah, you know, Vic, that, that's kind of the other thing that, that I dig about this mythology and, and the refusal to adhere to like a very specific kind of mythology is Hugh has he, he has a pretty good guess. But he's wrong. He's not right. He's not there. As as, as just pointed out, like like he he gives her some information, but I like a lot of it is guesswork. And you have to understand that like any mythology that exists about it is an oral tradition passed down from one victim to the next if they so desire to pass it down. So it's like this massively long game of telephone that any shreds of, of exposition have to be kept like very simple and even and anything beyond that is pure conjecture. Like, I don't know, I think it'll do this. I think it'll do that. Yeah. You know? That's part of the timelessness of this whole concept, like which ties into the cars and the, the lack of phones and everything is that like it almost has that campfire oral tradition, almost primal quality to it. This is an urban legend, a curse, you know, something that just kind of that is and there there isn't a book on it. Right. Well, I just I, the other thing I'm struck by, though, again, just to hammer home this point is that if it had appeared as the field hockey girl 
the very first time she sees it when she's in class at community college, it would have gotten her almost certainly. Yeah. What causes her, what draws her attention, what causes her to flee is the fact that it is bizarre juxtaposition of this elderly woman in a hospital gown walking through the hallways of a college. And again, I think those are the those are the images that invite this interpretation that that, you know, it is a metaphor for old age or whatever. But more than that, again, as it as an insight into what it really is or what it really wants, it can if it can be anything. It could have been any old college student with a stack of books, mm-hmm. and she's fucking dead. It doesn't do that. It wants her to run. Yeah, it, yeah. It's not trying to be as stealthy as possible. Exactly. It it follows. Let me throw this question out there. Why does it change up the game when it goes after Greg? At, to become his mother? Yeah. Well, I think – like let, let's discuss like what we think it draws when it assigns itself to a target, when it – inherit someone new like clearly it's drawing on their memories in some degree like it it has some access to their relationships but what purpose it is applying that to is really hazy and i would say that my just like rough perception of it is that it's in the best tradition of evil i think that it it is more animalistically cunning it isn't sitting there like, ha this is really going to get you. You know, like it has this kind of weird, almost symbiotic relationship with each of its victims where it's almost like drawing on your thoughts or something, but not like making super calculated choices. And to me, that's scarier somehow that it's like it, it, this thing exists somewhere between the Machiavellian intelligence of a certain type of antagonist and the zombie. And it, it's kind of in that, in that gray area between them. And to me, that's somehow scarier because it's both a beast and a human soul, but it's not too much of either. It's between Jason and the alien. Yeah. Well, even though like, I would say there's a bit of the, the demon part of it is there. There is sort of a, a a cruelty. It has the sophistication of cruelty, but it, it doesn't have it in the like, you know what? I know what your weakness is, and I'm going to totally play on that. Like, you know, the fact that it becomes her dad, like, you know, you could say it times that well, but, you know, how much... How much thought did it really put into that? I don't know. Like, I think it's very much up for debate whether, again, like back to the idea of, is it really just being cruel and what it chooses to be? Or is there kind of a roulette wheel to it? And I I kind of feel there's a roulette wheel to what Mm. it appears as. You know, uh, it just occurred to me that there there actually is one other scene where it is crafty, and that's when it disguises itself as Yara at the beach house. And uh, is there's that crafty? That, well, I, I there's that extremely wonderful reveal where you know we see Yara walking toward Jay from behind, and uh, we 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 shift our frame, and camera finds Yara paddling around in, in the water. That's why it's it, not crafty. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I, I see what we're talking about. Um, like if it was gonna be Yara, it would wait until she's in the bathroom. Yara. Yeah, exactly. Um, and even when uh, it catches up with her, uh, it just like kind of picks up her hair 
to fuck with her. Like it, it isn't like the minute it touches you, you're zapped and that's it. But but it uh, was for Greg because it tackles him like a linebacker. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I think that that's kind of the thing. It's like you know, again, we're kind of getting to. You know, some people had kind of a little bump, a little pushback when it came to the exact rules. And I, I, I think that, you know, there's something kind of really cool about the fact that it's it's undefined. It's like when it gets you, it might instantly kill you or maybe it'll play with you a little bit. Uh, and because every time it does kill you, it does something different. It folds one girl in half and then, like, sucks uh, Greg's soul out, you know? It's I like, think that if there's, like, rules are great. But there's a real monotony and predictableness to something where you know exactly what it's going to do in every situation. Knowledge is not fear. The less we know, the more frightened we are. Exactly. And I think that one of the things about this movie is that it's like, you know, there's movies like 12 Monkeys and films that I don't know why that popped into mind. But, you know, like where you, you could talk about it for an hour after. And it's like, well, what would you do? You know, and well, here's how I would handle it. And if it's too obvious, well, I just won't do that. And I will do this. And that's how I survive. It follows like that's boring. And that's a five minute conversation. I think that with it, if I fuck some chick and she tells me that this demon's going to come and get me, then I'm instantly on the next plane to Hong Kong. I do a little math calculator. All right, it's walking at three miles per hour. It's X number of miles away. Let's assume that I can walk across the bottom of the ocean. Okay, and I would set a little timer. And as soon as it got like as close to that timer, then I would get uh, a ticket to New York and just kind of – but. Even though that's a very solvable situation, it still also means that I'm I'm doomed to be a nomad forever. I still have to. That's let, right. The movie acknowledges that, and I think that's the metaphor for death. In that, absolutely, that will work, but you will do it until eventually it. You yeah, know, yeah, you're going to die one way or the other. Like you die or it gets you. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, and eventually maybe you get sick, you get too old to run, and it catches up with you. Light is delayed. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, if you have the wherewithal to to do stuff like that, just kind of pick up and move your ass. But we all do. We can stop too. smoking. We well, can exercise. We can eat healthy. You know, all of that is valid. You can stay one step ahead of death for a long time. But the inevitability of death is what the movie is about coming to terms with. And that, John, you hit on the, that exact phrase that I have coined internally and probably not shared much with the world. So here you go. The scariest movie, I'm, uh, as you both probably know uh, at this point, that I've ever seen is Juwan. And after watching it and trying to understand what it was that I found so frightening about it, the phrase that I use to describe it is sadistic inevitability. That death is coming for you, and what that movie does, in probably the best version that it can be done, is give you a vague and pointless hope that maybe you can get away from it. And the third act revelation, like the big thing, the point, if you were watching Darkness Falls, where it's like, we're going to use the light in the lighthouse to destroy it, or the thing where we're going to bury the bones in consecrated ground, or whatever mm-hmm. the, you know, whatever that terrible thing is. What the revelation of a movie like that is, is that there is no escape. That is the inevitability. That is the thing. When you walk out of a movie like that, what you know is that there is no way out. There is a sadism to that as a storytelling mechanism that I think is tremendously effective if it's deployed correctly. The fact that if whoever you pass it on to dies 
it comes back to you. Back. You can't so, you can't get away from it. Well, you can't ever think, okay, that's done. For instance, Hugh knows is uh, he can sleep with Jay and then he relaxes only to have her get hit by a car. And when his guard is let down, you see what I mean? It's like I, I, with the example of, of me flying to Shanghai and then New York and going back and forth for the rest of my life. For one thing, I, I spend the entire rest of my life in kind of a low grade state of being on the lamb. And for another thing, like I, I can never have sex again because if I pass it along to anybody that's near me, I don't know. I can't set a clock for exactly how many miles away it is and how many miles it's walking per hour. Well, no, like, you might have it though at that point. You could it, have it. No, no, but no, no, but I, like, like, and, and like chasing somebody else. Yeah, but it, it's like you know, if they get hit by a car. Now, A, I don't know uh, if they're dead or not because our lives have taken different directions. And B, uh, now I don't know how many miles away it is. I don't know how many hours I have left. By the way, that's part of why I like the ending of this film because it's not a perfect solution. But as we understand the rules, the Mm -hmm. fact that in some way this couple – are passing it back and forth perhaps because they're, you know, they're in a sexual relationship now and they know where each other are. And like on some level, that is probably the best way to manage this. Even though in most ways, this movie doesn't fall into the kind of traditionally very conservative mindset of like the eighties horror films. But at the by the way, time, that's one of the things I love most about it. At the same time, it does make a very effective case against promiscuity. And the idea that if you're in like a monogamous relationship and you can share the burden, then you can kind of huddle together and thereby, you know, survive that much longer, find that much more safety and comfort, you know, X, Y, Z. I think this is is a, a girl's movie in some level, but like there are a lot of horror movies that are like, I'm a feminist movie, you know, and it's a girl with a guitar and a chainsaw and fuck you, man. Fuck the patriarchy. You know, and I think this movie has a much... Much, 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 much more sophisticated uh, approach. Like, it's not a quote-unquote feminist movie. It's not, you know, a retrograde patriarchal film. It's not an 80s movie or whatever, however you want to put a label on on what it it isn't. But it's, it's a movie that, like, almost is the most... Oh, I hate to use this word or, you know, phrase, but postmodern film that I can think of because there are men there, well, boys, you know, there are women or girls, you know, depending on how you, how you view these characters, but they, it doesn't adhere to any of those stereotypes and gender roles without like exploding them. I mean, like, yeah, there's elements where she's kind of, uh, you know, passive and there's elements where, uh, Paul is trying to be the knight in shining armor and, you know, be the guy to protect his, the girls in his life. And it, it has those things, but the way that it views them as a story and as a film are almost neutral or subtle or whatever you want to say. It's not telling us how to be a boy or how to be a girl. And and that's right. something fundamental that I think horror movies in general 
try to do when you're talking about morality or, you know, cautionary tales and especially with something dealing with sex, you know, where so many horror films are about sex in some way and how you right. should do it and how you shouldn't do it. And this movie right. kind of takes that on head on without ever really saying, you know, shame fingers here and, oh, right. that's appropriate there, you know, like it, it yeah. doesn't tie it up neatly in any way, shape or form. One of the other wonderful things about this movie is it treats its characters very much like human beings, and they can be flawed, they can be wrong, uh, they can be frightened, they can be immature and young, and sometimes a little mean to each other, but they're just people, they're just human beings, with all the pros and cons that go along with that. You know, I, I think that when you start from that place that we're going to tell a story that's inherently about the human experience and we're going to focus one aspect of the human experience around a what-if element, in this case a demon that follows you around wherever you go. If you have sex with somebody, I, I think that's where you find your best horror, your best sci-fi, your best fantasy movies. It's also not idealizing or making these characters, oh, too clever by half. And, you know, oh, they're so smart and they've got it all figured out and they just totally solve everything. And, you know, they have this unrealistic degree of heroic agency. You know, in a lot of ways, they're totally, you know, how you would expect your friends or neighbors would have dealt with this, you know, when you were that age. Like, there isn't that idealization I want to throw out, I just want to throw out two quick thoughts. Uh, the first one, and I'm jumping back just a little bit, but John, you had talked about how the that sense of inevitability is what makes the ending to the film so great. I want to throw out, and Mike, I mean, just you having gone through your version of, well, what would I do in this situation? Well, you again, you fly to Shanghai, fly to New York, fly back, whatever. We've sat here and figured all these all these things out. What it really makes me love is not just the ending of the film, which I think is brilliant. But the beginning of the film, because what you see with that girl at the beginning is that she has played out all of these scenarios in her head and she has just decided to give up. And that is fucking horrifying to me that she said I could spend the rest of my life flying to back and forth between China and New York or not, you know, whatever, whatever the solution is. But I could do that. Or I could just sit on this fucking beach and wait for it to take me because I can't spend the rest of my life running. And I feel like as a, as a person, that's probably where I would wind up. Like I might make a run of it for a while, but eventually I'm going to go, you know, fuck, this is just – I just can't keep this up. And that's what's so – that's what I find so terrifying about it. The other thought that I had just over the course of – By the of way, the, I would say that many people would make that choice. Yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. But that's so that's part of why this film, I think, connected so much. But again, but I think there are other people who were like, so I keep flying, just flying from, uh, you know, Shanghai to Sydney and back to Shanghai. Like, who gives a shit? Um, I think there are people for whom it doesn't connect because they don't share that sense of living. Oh, and, a, by the way, thing. FYI, that little girl could not do that. You know, like that yeah, wasn't one I, of her I, options. Yeah, that, that's kind of the thing is I'm presenting that scenario as a grown man. Uh, and the cool thing about the characters and the choices that the movie makes about these characters is that they are in that kind of they're just out of childhood, but they're not adults yet. So they have some resources, but basically they're still living with mom and dad. They don't really have any money. It's like it, it's a huge deal that one of them has this beat up station exactly. wagon. Exactly. If this you know, movie was uh, set in Beverly Hills, how different would it be? 
they're basically you know the Midwestern, uh, generally middle class kids. You Not know, only that, but it's yeah. Detroit. It's like yeah, one of the I'm most like, economically depressed places in the United States. Yeah, like two two. Oh, they two, go out of their way to really film and make sure that you realize where they are and what's happening around them. It's organic, the fact that they don't have a lot of material solutions to this problem. It's it's a huge deal that one of them has an uncle who has a beach house, and it's like just this little place, and they got a gun, and, and they try the gun, and you know, that doesn't work. And one of the other things, too, that I, you know, last time we were talking about, you know, people gave this movie some pushback about the rules and whatnot, is, you know, there were complaints that we get to the end of it, and it's like they, they enact this master plan, with which is the best that they can do within their mental and physical abilities and it comes to nothing for some people that was just like well what was the point of that ending it was a pointless ending and it's like no that is the point it's like they did their best they still kind of failed and there there is no drive the stake through the heart and now the dawn rises credits roll happy ending another weird thing about this movie is that's not the ending like it's like if you watch that movie once you're like oh that was that was the act three uh climax but yeah. it goes on for like a good fifteen minutes. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of the, the the high spike in terms of narrative right. action. The fact that the movie continues to kind of trundle along for a while as the characters are like, uh, okay, there's no beating this thing up. We we just have to now deal with it, and that that is a sense of dread that settles into your bones with this film. Absolutely, and that's clearly an intention and an intention accomplished. So to pick it back up and maybe go through some scenes in a little bit more detail. After this date that she has with Hugh, we see the sisters walk through the neighborhood and the camera is walking with them. There's so much steady cam in this film. The watching and walking is something that happens simultaneously in almost half the shots in this film. And then we go right to the next date after the sisters discuss Hugh. And we get the feeling from that conversation that Jay is ready for sex with with Hugh. I will say just as as a very fast sidebar, that scene hit me right in the marrow because I grew up in a neighborhood that looked exactly like that right down to the style of houses the streets that sometimes curved uh you know the lawns you know this that everything else it was exactly that neighborhood and for that and many other reasons this this film really crawled up into me but not least of which because it was basically like hey mike we we set this in your childhood neighborhood <laughs> and these are characters who are about that age <laughs> who well, are it's, a, there. It's, it's designed to to have that resonance i think i mean I, I i definitely think the film wants to be both immediately recognizable for millennials as okay this is kind of, I get this. This is me. This is my friends. This is kind of shit that we're dealing with. But the idea of nostalgia is very much captured, whether it's directly John Carpenter homages or, you know, like the couch in the house or whatever it may be. There's a lot of stuff from the past in this film as well. The score kind of kicks in after that, that walk that the girls are having. And there's like, Often a progression of notes in the score that end with a a mournful down note as the final note. And it often ends on this note between scenes or, or pieces of dialogue. It's ominous and it's kind of sad. And it's one of those little things that I think I honestly 
picture this film with no soundtrack or a different soundtrack. It's one of those films that would be utterly different in your experience of it. Very true. So he leads her into the woods, and it's obviously a romantic but isolated environment. We have the poster shot or the the front of the DVD or the Blu-ray or whatever you want to say, which is the car. And it's very highlight, and it's not very uh, private that these two are having sex in the back seat because it looks like they have like a 10K shining right on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a very deliberate light. Uh, they're basically parked under a street lamp, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, they're, they're convinced that this ruined parking garage is remote enough from civilization that they won't be disturbed. Well, in well, in fucking Detroit, it probably is. This is classic Americana. I mean, again, if you go back to the idea that this movie is detached from time, it exists in the 50s and the 80s and the present day. These are kids in a Chevy convertible going at it in the back seat. It's a little paradise by the dashboard light, yeah. Yeah, it could be a shot out of American Graffiti or something. But I think right. that's, yeah, that's that's part of why that becomes the posters. Look, you know instantly what's going on in there. This is something that, you know, that was a mind for comedy in Porky's. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Porky's. Um, uh, and it's something you connect with immediately as an image. It's two teenagers in the backseat of a car. How many of us were conceived in the backseat of a 50 <laughs> Yeah, it's something we can all relate to, you know, you whether to. directly or uh, except, <laughs> except that there is what you what you understand in the course of this film is that what's, what's transpiring in there is something much more horrifying than yeah. uh, has previously, it's previously been used to disclose. Yeah, the conception mobile. <laughs> this is one of those scenes, though, that, like, very few in this movie, I mean, like, it has many idyllic scenes, but it doesn't usually totally fuck with you in the sense that it's, we're going to make something seem so beautiful only to completely undercut it. Yeah, it completely flips the dinner table by not like chloroforming her, but then she wakes up strapped to a wheelchair yeah, in, but her, they, in her underwear. Yeah. There's, a, there's a beautiful shine on everything, her skin, her hair, sure. the surface oh, yeah. of the car's exterior, like after they have sex, the idyllic afterglow is yeah. really, uh, really captured. And then the location, the parking garage, when she is strapped to this wheelchair in her undies, and you see this terrible, these pillars and open spaces where you can't even ever imagine windows or walls. Like, this place almost seems like Roman-era ruins somehow. Right. Like, it's, yeah, it's yeah. that decrepit. They're ruins, but also very specifically chosen for its visibility in every direction. I, I think mm-hmm. that he scouted this place very carefully with, with something specific in mind. But I also think that this movie lands after a decade plus of kind of spies this term of torture porn films where we have a lot of horror movies that are about people being strapped to stuff and getting a hard time. So as a horror audience, when we cut and there's our, our female lead tied to a wheelchair, our immediate thought is, oh no, oh no. Oh, no. And the fact that even though Hume has harmed her in the sense that he's passed along the curse, he means her no harm in a direct way. Uh, In fact, he's just going to use this in in a very powerful method of introducing her to the curse that she's been given. Yeah, he says this thing. It's going to follow you. Somebody gave it to me and I passed it to you back in the car. 
as I've often mentioned in the past on this and other podcasts, I despise exposition, but there is a way to do it well. And I would say that this scene is right up there with, ooh, ironically enough, Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor in another parking garage in the original <laughs> Terminator. Both are probably the two best expositional scenes I've ever seen. Well, a big part of it is motivating the expository character. And my God, is this guy motivated to provide yeah. this information? Uh, I noticed that he suggested it changes shape to help it get closer to you. And that kind of shrewdness really doesn't show up very often. Like, if anything, it feels more random in what it looks like or intentionally off-putting rather than, like, some kind of ninja trying to get closer to you. So I just wanted to point out that I, I think that, yeah, he's he's wrong on that point for whatever reason. And the first time that we actually see it, it's a naked woman who, who would stand out anywhere, you know? So it's like, <laughs> I don't think you thought that part through, dude. I, I, unless maybe during the course of his particular haunting, it showed up frequently as a loved one. And that's why, and he's just guessing. It, it raises the question of, is that what it did to him? And yeah. is it just anxious to get through him, but does it does it enjoy torturing her with old people and giants and children? And again, this becomes our insight, whatever insight we're given into, uh, into it. But I also just want to bring up, too, because the interesting thing about the scene and one of the things that I think is exceptional about this film is that Hugh is... I think at once selfishly motivated to try and make her survive and say, look, just pass it on. Just give it to somebody else. But I think there is also, and especially you see it in the later scene, but you see it here too in the parking garage. There is genuine guilt. Like I think there is a genuine question. There's a genuine debate to be had about how bad of a guy is he. I don't think he's a good guy. I don't think any of this is altruistic or anything. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the part of what's interesting about the film and the way that it treats him, John, this goes back a little bit to what you were saying. It's, it is not men are bad and women are good. I don't think it's that he, you know what I mean, that he passed this on to her and and then said sort of fuck off. Right. But, but I actually, actually I take that back. That's exactly what he did. But uh, something in the performance and the writing and everything else gives me the impression of someone who's actually guilty about it, who wishes that it wasn't this way, that wishes that he didn't have to do this. They cast him very well. He's a very good actor. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Jay, Jay also expresses a lot of hesitancy and guilt uh, because uh, Paul is just like, I'll fuck you. Ah. And she's like, no. And <laughs> but, but then when she does fuck other people, it's like after only a lot of, you know, chewed lips and, you know, white knuckles and deliberation. Now, guys, very swiftly, I want to posit a theory that just suddenly came to me. You ready for this? Data point one is Hugh thinks that it takes the shape of loved ones. All right. And we just have to, surmise, to just to hurt you, he says. Yeah. Or, or uh, yeah. And we have to surmise that uh, he's basing that assumption off of his personal experience. OK. Data point one. Data point two. When it goes for Greg, it doesn't fuck around. It doesn't torment him. It just shows up as mom, knocks on his door, gets him. Boom. Data point three. When Jay uh, fucks a three guy, not one, not two, but three guys. Uh, we don't know that for a fact. We do not well, know that for a fact. Come on. Uh, but uh, when nah, she fucks I've, I've heard interpretations of that. And, like, again, it's that classic, uh, the editing, the grammar of editing. Like, you know, you have a series of shots. 
It, mm-hmm. it could be this. It could be that. Maybe she's hungry. Maybe she's scared. Maybe she's terror. You know, maybe she's yeah. horny. You know, it's based on what the images that are, that surround it, surround her expression. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, well in, in, in that case, I really, when it, the first time I saw this movie, I was just like, what exactly happened there? I'm not absolutely sure. So there is a certain vagueness in terms of it, but on some I don't think you viewing, can, all I'm saying is like, I don't think you can definitively say that she fucked those guys. That's all I I'm think. On subsequent viewings, I look at that shot progression, and it's girl sees three guys in a boat. She realizes that she can't run. She needs to pass along. She pulls off her top. She makes a swim to them. Uh, she's got a cast on her hand, which I, I kind of bumped on a little bit. But uh, And then we cut to her tearfully. It wasn't a pleasant experience for her. She, she's ass- definitely crying on her when, when we cut to her driving away. Yes. But – like that could be that she thought about it and didn't do it and knows that she didn't get off easy, that like it's still with her because Maybe. nothing that she evidences immediately following that scene, nor the immediate return of it suggests mm-hmm. that like she thought, okay, well that bought me a good week, you know, like right, right, none, right, right. None, that never comes across either. Well, okay, I, I I would I would say that that's vague, but I, I mean, uh, just to put a bow on my on my mini theory, uh, whether she fucked those guys or not, uh, we we have two at least a minimum of two did points, one of them firm, one of them vague. That uh, it tends to take a form of loved ones when it chases after men or males, and with her, the experience that we witness with her is it's far more insidious. It likes to toy with her. There's cat and mouse. It'll show up as weird creatures just to frighten her. It likes to follow her around and make her scared. You know? Uh, it's, it's just a thought that I put out there. That's, Mike, I think that's really interesting. Could you, just extrapolating out from that, mm-hmm. could you posit that it is male? That it wants it, it wants to dispose of the men as quickly as possible, but the women it enjoys is there something masculine about it mm-hmm. interesting and you know it kind of kind of feeds into kind of a almost a standard you know we want to watch women suffer kind of a thing uh you know I, I, I well, there's definitely a big difference between you know the male perception of sexuality and the female perception of sexuality i mean like if you're you believe in gender roles whatsoever. So like it, it's, it's very different how she approaches this and how, what her solutions are and how her solutions make her feel versus a guy with it. You know, like it's easier for Hugh on some level, but it's also easier for her and that she could just go fuck three guys, you know, a lot more readily than, than he could pass it along. But I think that, like, when you look at the way that it acts or, you know, like, if you're trying to ascribe a gender to it, I, I can't because it's so fluid in, in the gender of what it, what it appears as that I, I don't see a through line there personally. Yeah. I I'm just kind of randomly throwing out that, that little bundle of thoughts that, that piled on me. And uh, I, I, I think that I'd actually already circumvented myself in the sense that when it comes in the theater, it doesn't, you know, it just appears. It just stands there by the doorway. It doesn't actually follow after him. So there, even with Hugh, there's, there's a little bit of a toying involved. But uh, I, I wonder if it's 
just for narrative expediency that kills Gregson. Well, I disagree. Yeah, I disagree with the the idea that it. Yeah, I mean, like, and I think you already talked yourself out of it, but clearly he was, you know, collected quite a bit of intelligence on this thing, and it's probably not like gunning for him in in the most ninja like fashion possible. And with Greg, like I, I think there's a big difference and this is interesting. And I think it's actually well worth talking about a big difference between how Greg views this whole business and how like Hugh views it. Hugh has the proper amount of respect, even reverence for this, but Greg all along is interpreting it as that, that family is a mess across the street. You know, yeah. and it's just this girl being dramatic and he he's still sitting there laughing with other girls. This guy is quite the player. We see her with like we see him with like five different girls um, mm-hmm. in the movie. You know, he's still laughing at lunch after it's been passed on to him. He's not taking it seriously at all. So I think that in some ways it's kind of dismissive of him, perhaps, and kind of like you're not fun and you're not buying into this. So fuck you. I don't know. Like yeah. that's just, that's kind of one way you could read it. And I like the read that you put on that because he is kind of the, you know, the neighbor, you know, he grew up with them, but not as like part of their little circle of friends. You know, he's the guy who's across the street. He's a little bit older. He's a different social circle, you know? So of course they all like kind of sort of know each other as neighbors, but it's not like, you know, they're not friend friends. He kind of puts himself out there as just, you know, being like a decent human being more than anything else. You but could say time, that it's more interested in her than him. I think that, you know, it's not going to be lost on that Jay's a good looking girl. And, you know, if he can kind of white knight a little bit, you know, then uh, and get, get on her good side. Uh, but, yeah. But they've already had like, sex, which is interesting. Oh, no, I, I mean earlier, like when, when she bolts out of the house and. You know, at first, uh, you know, they, they run to the playground and, you know, they see him come out of the shadows and they're surprised that he cares and is willing to help. But again, know? he they, he's their neighbor. He's been there like the, from the beginning, just the way they have, like she and him have a romantic history in high school. Like, I feel like I, I read that more as he's not in their immediate circle, but mm-hmm. like, you know, like he's one of the top 10 most important people in her life already. There's no doubt you know, about that. Interestingly enough, tying back to the idea that uh, Hugh wants to retreat back to childhood, where does Jay run when she's confronted full on with it? She runs to a playground. She sits on a swing and she swings in its childlike manner. So we get, I think, the first of, or possibly the second, of um, Yara's uh, excerpts from whatever she's reading. And she says, I think that if one is faced with inevitable destruction, one must feel a great longing to set down, close one's eyes and wait, come what may. I'm not sure if that was sit down or set down, but uh, in any event, it really seems to tie back to the first victim's uh, Annie's choice uh, that Vic was alluding to earlier. I think that's true. So she's still reading The Idiot by Dostoevsky, is that right? I'm not sure what she's reading. I mean, that's been what she's reading again from the the first scene when they're sitting on the couch and she's looking at her clamshell. That's right. When she says, uh, Paul, it's about Paul. The Idiot is about Paul. Yeah, exactly. I had looked at the uh, the Wikipedia page in preparation for this. So I'm just going (laughs) to say the title, because how the fuck did I get through college without Wikipedia? I don't understand. (laughs) Uh, 
The title is an ironic reference to the central character of the novel, Prince Lev Nikolaevich Mushkin, uh, a young man whose goodness and open-hearted simplicity lead many of the more worldly characters he encounters to mistakenly assume that he lacks intelligence and insight. I brought that up last time, actually. And yeah, you can definitely see uh, how the characters view Paul versus who Paul perhaps really is or how the film sees him in, in that relationship. Yeah, so, they, 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 have, they have open contempt for him. There, there are actually two scenes that are very important to each other. One is when uh, Paul first floats the idea of you know staying over in order to quote unquote <laughs> protect Jay, uh, the other girls are are savage with him. They're just like, "Yeah, Jay, what? You know, lock your door, Jay. Or else you're gonna find Paul humping your leg." And and this poor kid is mortified. But the, but they're correct. He has a deep crush on her and has maintained that for a long time. But then I uh, put a pin in the map on that because later when Jay comes and sits with him, you know, his eyes linger on his legs. She's so close, it's maddening. Oh, yeah, because her her feet actually, you know, casually and presumably inadvertently touch him. And it's a wonderful moment from a, a, you know, a filmmaking and directorial uh, standpoint to to highlight that detail that he reacts to her her, her feet touching him, you know, in this very innocent, normal way. Yeah, it's but it's so close. They're so familiar, and uh, you know it's it's torturing this guy because uh, you know due to the you know the savagery of the other girls earlier on, like he, he's thereby doubly reinforced in his good boy behavior uh, when it comes to a situation like this. But then when she starts talking to him, it's about his own sexuality that they had kissed. Not only had they kissed uh, when they were younger. Uh, she, he was her first kiss, and then he moved on and then kissed her sister, Kelly. Uh, so she's kind of laughingly uh, remember, reminiscing about a, a time when I, I think that she respected him more, when he was more uh, sexual. And uh, now that he has become uh, kind of a nerdy guy, uh, you know, they've, they've shoved him into the front zone so hard uh, into this demasculated space that uh, now they consider him like a, a puppy to be whipped and kicked with their with their words and to be somewhat despised. Whereas uh, you know they look at Greg as even though he's got a shitty car and he's just an eighteen year old dude, but you know like, like he definitely is like a for for their little world a vastly more masculine presence. Well, I think and, part of uh, it, though, is the, the intimacy is partially what makes him uninteresting. Because, you know, they, they've grown up with this guy. And, yeah, to a degree, they've grown up with Greg. But, like, at that age, you're looking for other, new, exotic, different, you know? And right, it, right. it's almost working against him just that he is, you know, he's part of the of the fabric of their day-to-day life and thus boring. Like, I think that's part of it. It's not that he's, yes, he's a bit of a drip, but I think like, you know, not to a, not to a tremendous degree. I think a lot of it is just that he's like the, he's the one, you know, yeah, it's a familiar, very believe. Sorry, that's my fifth uh, vodka cranberry, uh, mm-hmm. which I'm drinking because I, I have a weird twinge in my side, and I have a sneaking hunch I might be fighting off like a, a kidney stone. Mm. So I'm drinking. I'm now I'm drinking this 
fucking cranberry juice. Anyways, but uh, I've had five of these things. And uh, so that's why I'm stumbling over the term familiarity breeds <laughs> contempt. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, wait, I, I just want to point out, too, because I had this thought over the, the sort of the course of the last week about thinking about Paul. So much of this film feels like, oh, like Paul's the Paul's the victim. He's the wimp. He's the he's the nerd. Like he has to sit there and watch as she fucks these other guys and blah blah blah. But I found myself wondering: Is there a world in which this is Paul? Like, yes, Paul has to watch as she makes this sort of terrible decision to have sex with Greg and everything else. But then he gets to you know, then Greg gets murdered, mm-hmm. and then like it's like it's like finally she has to turn to him and be like. Yes, like you're the one. Like I don't know why I didn't see it before. Like because I think that her decision to have sex with Greg is is so largely dependent on this idea of like he can handle himself, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. She, yes. she picks Greg. She has a choice, and she picks Greg because she feels like Greg is more likely to survive. So it's almost a, it's not even like Greg is more sort of sexually virile as it is that he is more likely to be able to fend off attacks from you know supernatural beings or and or pass it on the thing the thing that greg represents to her is you know like a solution to this thing whereas she still sees paul as you know the innocent kid that she's known all of her life the earnest you know loving but sensitive kid and i think that in the course of this he proves himself to be a lot more than that. And I want to bring up that I inflicted this movie on my girlfriend, Kim, who has zero interest or tolerance for horror movies. And I told her, Oh, it's a love story. It's a love story. Like to, to get her to watch it. <laughs> Bastard. Absolutely. And she like, part of why she is so angry about me making her see this film. And it's been almost two years now is that I sold it that way. And, and, and what she would say like very indignantly is, it is not a love story. She was using that kid. Like she, she didn't want anything to do with him until it was the, last resort that Mm -hmm. she had to give it to him and this this sucker would you know would take on this this burden and this risk and she she believes that she doesn't have that that jay doesn't have any you know true love for for paul and i don't know that i agree with that however i believe that paul proves himself in the course of this film and i think in the end when they're walking down the sidewalk hand in hand that that is a real partnership and i believe that they are the right two people to fend this thing off it's certainly more romantic and loving it gives a sense of a relationship in a way that she never has with Greg. I mean that's sort of what I was driving at. There's a sense in which this is a this this movie is a fantasy for nerds like Paul. Like we've all I'm going to say we cuz I've been that nerd. Fair enough. <laughs> I was, was 40 so I can pretend otherwise, but now it's I fucked that up. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh you know what i mean like we we've all had a girl that we were pining after and then we watched her sort of you know pick the guy that was again more more athletic better looking or more whatever you know i mean again just on that base sort of evolutionary scale more mm-hmm. more virile more more uh, appealing genetically or whatever else 
But Paul gets to watch that guy fucking die. And then this shit comes crawling back to him. Yeah, yeah. Look at this is like, yes, she's using him or she's doing this. But there's another sentence in which Paul at the end of this movie is like, I'm the cock of the fucking walk. And well, I, I, I think he's not looking down at me like he's fucking dead. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and that's true. There, there, there is a certain nerd, nerd fantasy itch that this movie is scratching, but I think it also undercuts it by so clearly, as Kim pointed out, underlying the fact that she settles for him out of pure survival. It's like, all right, well, he's literally like the last man on earth. <laughs> well, that's yeah. what really, what and, and, and and for Paul, he's like, it, it's a win. I still get Jay. I, I, you know, even though she like, I, I think one of the key images of this whole movie is when she reluctantly holds his hand as they walk down the sidewalk. But if you were to compare, you mentioned last time, Mike mm. Shelley in comparison to this character from the great Friday the 13th part three. If you were to watch like scene by scene, the screen time, you know, of these two characters and compare them like mm. that guy is riddled and destroyed by his own insecurities. Oh, and yeah, yeah. This kid, you know, like, he's not aggressive. He watches. He calculates his moves. You know, mm-hmm. he's empathetic, but he's not trying to be charming. He's not trying to seduce her at any point in the film. You know, you can... You can say that he's not, you know, an alpha male in some way, but this is not necessarily in any way a weak character. He's I just... think that the, the movie loves to cut to his hangdog look. Oh, yeah. uh, every time Jade says or does something, uh, the, we we always get that that quick little cut over to Paul, you know, True. just so we can just so we can revel in his momentary sadness. But, it, you know, even that, like, I, I can't disagree. But, you know, like, he's not he's not magnifying it. He's not multiplying it. He's not exaggerating it. You know, he's just like, yeah, you see how it, it plays for him. But can you really, like, what can you accuse him of? Like, you know, like, what, 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 how is he overreacting or, you know, blowing this out of proportion or even wasting his time. I don't know. Like, I think it's really not that cut and dried. Uh, if Jay ran into like a, a dude with an airplane, a private jet, she would bounce on Paul in a second. What's missing from this interpretation of the film. And, mm-hmm. and I would actually, I'm going to venture to say this is, this might even be just a flaw in the movie in general. Mm-hmm. Is that if they had differentiated between her sex with Greg and her sex with Paul, and like, look, like this is the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the nerd fantasy version of it is that when she has sex with Paul, she discovers that he's got a huge dick. The sex with him is somehow vastly more satisfying than it was. Wow. Who she slept with out of necessity to uh, paraphrase Revenge of the Nerds. All nerds think about his sex. and all I was about, about to say that. I was about <laughs> to make a joke about maybe they have sex in a fun house. He's wearing a Darth Vader except, outfit. Except uh, that, wait, wait. I'm going to put this on record right now. If this shit is going out into the world, I want to be the one to say I was a huge fan of Revenge of the Nerds until sure. as part of the enormous cultural shift that has taken place that I genuinely believe made the world a better place. 
you gradually begin to realize that Robert Carradine raped the fucking cheerleader. <laughs> right? like, it's where he pretends to be the. It's it's kind of an awful, sick, twisted movie now when you watch right, it. Right. The he pretends character. to be her boyfriend, and she has sex with him, and then he takes the mask off. Yeah, it's and it's, that's it's, and like that's fucking sick, right? Yeah, it's it's really skeezy soon. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I I I if we're gonna talk about the real questions, the real questions of it follows uh, is is sex defined solely by penetration? Well, that's or, a question, or, or or through oral sex, or a hand job. Yeah. Like, where does it end? You know? Yeah, like exactly. Where, that is dry, a, dry a slippery slope. Can you pass it through dry humping? <laughs> Somebody in one of the podcasts I listened to that I mentioned last week, and unfortunately I no longer remember the names, they were like, you know, maybe it's sex as defined by what you think it is. You know, like mm-hmm. if that person thinks this is sex, then it will be passed uh, regardless of what that act is. So the one of the things that people discuss a lot with this film is the uh, sexually transmitted disease as, you know, clearly, um, whether it's a metaphor or, you know, just like a, a trope, it's all over what's happening because, you know, you're passing something on to somebody via the act of sex. And there's quite a bit of things that are traditional in that way and that I believe the neighbor says to her mom – did she catch anything? And mom says, I don't think so, which is a hilariously ironic um, statement because yeah, she did. But I also believe that like, if you look at that character and this is a whole other point that is worthy of discussion, I believe it's Greg's mom who's sitting there with her having this conversation Mm -hmm. because it looks like the same actress. Um, And there's a, a weird uh, and this is the, the, the thing that bears further discussion. There's a weird multiplicity of people in this film that has to do with it taking forms of various characters um, that is very like just on a visceral cinematic viewership level disconcerting or confusing in that it often takes the form of characters that we've just seen like the, it, it becomes a little boy at a, at one point it's the little boy that was peeping on her, you know? And, and that's just is kind it? of, yes. Is that. it? Oh, wow. Man. I never made that connection. You're I, absolutely right. I didn't either until just now. Okay. Cause I, I mean, that kid is, uh, is kind of a creep on his own because uh, when we first see him, he's kind of peeping on Jay when she's in uh, the pool. And, uh, and, you know, and again, you know, when it comes to this film, it's a, it's a, conversation about human sexuality at a young age and you know and that spans from this kid who's like maybe 10 or 11 maybe to you know a hugh who claims at least to be 21 you know but still younger people and uh that kid interesting beat is when jay is also wondering if she caught something quote unquote from hugh and she's kind of giving herself a self-examination she's frightened when a ball slams against uh, the window and uh, she goes and she looks and uh, the ball is now lying in the yard and she kind of stares at it for a moment. Like she's expecting someone to come and retrieve it. And then that doesn't happen. Then camera reverses. And what do we find? We find that that creepy kid crouched just outside the window frame, which means that he threw that ball directly against the window to 
purposely to scare her. Like he was spying on her and then he wanted to get a reaction to her. He wanted to connect with her in some way. He wanted to, he wanted to uh, uh, make something happen. The way that you, you, you went, as a little kid, pull the pigtails of the girl you have a crush on. Yeah. Yeah, or you, you tap on the glass of a fish tank. You know, it's like you know, he, he you know, he can't. You know, he watches <laughs> until like he he wants to you know interact with her in some way. But he, he's oh, sorry, you know, that's, that's fascinating because John, your description is of a normal kid, and Mike, your description is of a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really glad that you brought that it's up, Mike. Way, right? Because by the way, it this... puts the lotion on this guy. <laughs> It takes the lotion from the basket. Um, so this this scene, I'm really glad you brought it up because uh, you know it's so interesting. It's actually one of the more more unsettling, discursive scenes in the in the movie where you're almost like, wait, did that just happen? And then it cuts so quickly that you know the story just kind of continues. But I yeah. just want everyone to understand exactly what Mike just said, which is the scene. Jamie uh, Jay is in the bathroom and she peers down the front of her undies. And, you know, she's thinking like, is there a baby inside me? Is there a VD crawling on my goods? You know, you're just sort of like, (laughs) 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 Oh no. Are there germs on my jubbly webbies? Existential groin related. That's, that's, that's the phrase. Sophisticated. It's good. Existential groin related dread. <laughs> then we get the jump scare of the ball hitting the yeah. window, and then there's this yeah. really awesome, like slow zoom in on the ball in the in the yard, like with a telephoto type lens, and it's just like the ball, and it's just sitting there in the yard. And then you have that that shot of the kid on the roof, you know, just out of her view, kind of crouching under the window. Obviously, he's been peeping on her in her bra and panties. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, like, it's gone to this point where the kid climbs up on the roof and is mm-hmm. looking in her window and throws the ball at the at the window. It's like, this could be its a whole movie in and of itself. And it's, yeah, just a f- it's definitely one thing to kind of like peep over, you know, fence. the, the side of a little fence right there. And Jay even sees them and kind of laughs along. And she's like, ha ha kids that escalated quickly because, you know, then we get to this and it's like, that's straight up weird fucking behavior. And you combine you know? it with what she just was dumped on her yard, like a rape victim. The police were mm-hmm. all here. She's, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with this curse now. And this kid is ramping up his own, you know, yeah. assault, yeah. If you know, for lack of a better term, it's like, yeah. it's just a crazy, crazy scene. And there's no payoff to it in terms of the character, except yes. again, you have, you have the, you have him reappear, in the form of it, apparently later on, which I now have to spend a little time grappling with. Yeah, it's at the beach yeah, house. It's it feels like a, a weird offshoot of the story that doesn't pay off. Like you almost think this is what I'm imagining is that there's a in the sequel what we find is a Jay who is who is now so desperate that she comes back to this kid five years from now after every guy that she's that she's ever slept with is dead. And it's like, you, like, remember how you had the thing for me like five years ago and you were mm-hmm. creepy? Wow. Uh, I mean, that's, again, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm trying to play out this storyline that they begin and, and just sort of let Peter out a little bit. It is, uh, it, it could be conceived or, or viewed as a uh, loose thread. But at the same time, maybe it is paid off if you realize that it takes the form 
of this boy that is sort of having his own way with her in a sense, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Thematically, it ties into what Mike said that this is a this is a movie about young people grappling with sexuality. And yeah. that's really what we're witnessing in that scene is a young person grappling with sex and sexuality and not knowing how to deal with it. The true two things truly make you a, a grown up sex and death. The act of crossing that bridge and, you know, having sex and all, all the many complications that come of that and being aware of the fact that we are inevitably mortal. If you wrestle with those two things and come to terms with them, you know, like there's other forms of responsibility, of course, but those are two of the main portals that we cross through from childhood to adulthood. So uh, when she's at school, whether it's high school or community college or whatever it is, she sees this tall old lady limping across the quadrangle towards her. And I think one of the little cues or clues rather that tell you it's wrong somehow is that where she appears to be coming from is from a wall, like not from the street. Like you don't know Hmm. how her, how her walking trajectory would have taken her, you know, she's not coming off of a path or something. It's like, she seems to be coming literally from the wall and Hmm. whether or not, you know how, yeah, I don't even know how, you know, how you justify it, but it's unsettling. It tells you like, wait, mm-hmm. why is that woman coming from there? You know, mm-hmm. it just, it's another visual clue of something being wrong. I mean, and this woman who looks to be an invalid who's come from a hospice or something. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, one of the lines that the woman, uh, the teacher is reading, uh, you know, in the classroom, as Jay is beginning to notice this, is I am Lazarus come from the dead. I shall right, tell right. you all. And we have this scary old broad, Approaching, And I, I think this was the scene, if I have to say, watching the movie for the first time that I was really like, holy shit, I love this movie. It was this mm. scene. Because, you know, just the combination of visuals and the out-of-placeness of this statuesque old woman relentlessly pursuing this girl in the hallway uh, of this school... It feels so fresh and so striking, and the, and, the, and this is where the score really kicks in. I oh, just yeah. it blows me away. Let's just kind of state right out loud that disaster piece tore this fucking movie in half, man. I love this score. I I, I think it's one of the best horror scores of the past decade. Oh, I so yeah. agree. It's evocative of previous scores, and mm-hmm. yet it's so its own thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, it's definitely taking its cues from. Carpenter without just doing a straight up lift. You know, the music screams for the audience to let the audience know when something is being frightening. And I, I guess you could call that bluntly manipulative. Uh, as I mentioned in another nah. podcast, like I, I, I saw, uh, you know, I saw The Shining with my aunt, and you know, there were scenes where she's like, "If it wasn't for the music screaming at me, I would just see a little boy looking at a door." <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, I know I, some people have reviewed this film and said that they actually thought the music was overly um, intrusive. You know, that that they thought. Uh, in which I generally agree with that some of the scariest scenes or the most tense scenes are scenes that feel truly naturalistic and don't have any music telling you how you should feel about it. But like, I think that's really just another uh, credit to this particular score. I don't mind the, the oral assault. I, I, I think that it definitely adds a lot to this film, at least my enjoyment of it. 
Likewise. So after that, she goes to eat ice cream in her childhood refuge and confides in her friends. Again, back to the idea that a bit later she goes to the park and gets on a swing. You know, we're constantly tying this back to the idea of wanting to retreat to childhood and the the comfort and safety that you associate with that time of your life. And you, you know, know I, just to make a random observation, I, I noticed uh, the last time you know upon rewatching this for me. The natural state of these characters is slumping around in a little group. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever they aren't directly given something to do, like go to class or go to work or uh, you know run away from it, they just slump around. And uh, it's like there are multiple scenes where you're just kind of like lying around, just just sitting around. It, it, they're, they're like uh, they're, they're like soporific chimpanzees. Well, that's uh, that sounds like a teenager. I mean, I think we've all been there. <laughs> so when they're uh, on the couch, you talked about that a bit earlier, you know, and, and opening up about their past and everything. And, and she decides to mention, uh, Jay does, that Paul was her first kiss. Uh, but again, not with any, you know, this was something I said to Kim uh, when she was telling me about how, you know, she's just using Paul and all this. I'm like, not in one scene in this movie do I see her working her wiles on Paul. I never see her manipulating him. I never see her taking advantage of what she knows his vulnerabilities are in order to get him to do what she wants. Actually, he relentlessly works on her throughout the film. Let it be me. Let it be me. I can help. I can help. I want to do it. And eventually she succumbs to that. That's how I read it. She is never ever in this film manipulating him. Yeah, that's true. I, I will say that she, she's a far, I mean, it's one of the reasons that uh, she's a protagonist that, uh, that she has her sympathy is she's never cruel to him. Well, but uh, she, the, she the, the other, the other girls are, but she is not. She has the power in this dynamic. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I certainly she, she can but, choose lots of different ways to go with this. And and if she wants to pass this on to someone, she can pass it on in any different way she wants, by and large. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul is the one going over here. <laughs> yeah, open, pass the yeah, ball. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know I, that that is kind of the thing too. One of the other interesting aspects of this curse of this mythology is it gives its victim a great degree of agency. It, it, it you know the it, it's loaded into the curse that you have a lot of time to think about how you're going to handle it. And that could lead you to uh, kind of a, a, an indirect suicide, like the girl in the opening scene, or it can lead to a lot of planning and uh, attempts and foresight and research. But yeah, it, it gives you a lot of time to figure out, you know, to, to not only understand how doomed you are, but also figure out, you know, ways they can try to approach it. Yeah, absolutely. And we also have, a lot of talk about the nascent sexuality of your teenage years here in the scene where they talk about sex ed and finding porno magazines in an alley and that they kind of shared these experiences, these coming of age things. By the way, I had a similar experience as a kid where I found a bunch of hustlers in a creek uh, with some friends. And that was definitely the first time I had seen any of that. So that hmm. resonated with me. And I think that's, you know, in some ways a universal thing that that he's tapping into here. So we get the broken window. Not, not anymore, John. No, With not anymore. Children discovering pornography in a creek or, 
are long gone. Yeah, I, I found this laptop in the creek. No, no, it's not really going <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I found this website after Googling for two seconds. <laughs> oh, God. Like, yeah, it's it's, it's really funny. Look, much of the magic and mystery uh, are, are gone or it just changed forms. So uh, the timing of this window breaking, it's like a little where you're like, okay, something's about to happen. Like, all right, they've been chatting for a while. And then the window breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's timed well, but not perfectly. And she doesn't quite get that other people don't see it yet. That the fact that Paul goes in there, I don't think the audience does either. I mean, like we're still pretty early in figuring this shit out for ourselves. Paul goes into the kitchen where the window broke and you know, he doesn't see it. And here we go. I believe that this reaches the apex of the film and it's kind of a slow decline in some ways from this moment on as she goes into the kitchen and she turns around and it's very slow and the music is really kicking into gear. It's like slow motion, slow motion. And she turns and reacts and we see the girl in the kitchen. Now I think that this is her most or it's most interesting form because it's this girl whose bra is half on and half off. She's wearing one sock. I don't know, like something, some kind of, as Mike mentioned earlier, some kind of physical trauma has happened to her mouth where it would almost appear that she has fangs because like her front teeth are gone. I I think there's some mascara going on, like major weird mascara related shit. And of course, she's pissing her skirt at the same time. Yeah. On on paper, this is a very pathetic creature. You know, this is if you saw this woman on the street, you you would run to her aid. You would be like, "What happened to you? What's going on? Do you need help?" But you know, be because of the incongruity and suddenness of the appearance, plus the music, uh, she's frightening. She's a monster. Well, she appears monstrous. I mean, I thought she looked kind of like, and this is a really random illusion. I don't know, but she looked like a Star Trek alien in some way, like from the original mm. TV show. Cause like she, her eyes are bruised. I don't know what's going on there. Her makeup is smeared. She just really messed up and the, and the sort of fangs make her look like, you know, like somewhat of a, a creature in some way. And it's, it's horrible. It's really yeah. horrible, especially when you start to think like, well, how did she get this way? Who is this person that is being, you know, replicated in this form? And what happened? What was her story? And it yeah, just she, it, it makes you think all these horrible things. Oh, well, she 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 brings to mind uh, two characters who are both scary in the in and of themselves. The one is the ghost in uh, Sixth Sense. Yes, the, the woman in the kitchen who uh, slashed her wrists. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, Regan in the exorcist, when she appears in the midst of this kind of hipster dinner party and, uh, says something creepy and urinates on herself, uh, you know, just the suddenness and incongruity and, and kind of base grossness and, uh, you know, and urinating yourself is a very childlike thing to do. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, a it's not any one particular thing, but when you take all the elements together, it's a yeah, it's a frightening, monstrous, uncanny moment. It's great. And as you said, like there's a cohesion to so many of these elements. Like so many of them tie back to childlike vulnerability in some way, you know? And that's yeah, this this film really like 
everything kind of is pulling in the same direction, which is what masterpieces do. So uh, Jay runs upstairs to the bedroom and, you know, she's panicking and trying to get her shit together and she needs some water and she's not adjusting at all to the new normal. She's saying things like <laughs> there's something wrong with me. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe like one of either Paul or, you know, her sister or someone says somebody broke the window. That really happened. I think it's Paul. And then they hear the doorknob rattling and... Um, you know, it, they hear it. They think it must be mom, and which is also very primal. You're like, mom, you know, like, yeah. oh god, unpack that. And it's, but it's, it's Yara. Oh, great! And then I think many people, this is their favorite moment in the film, and I, I can't disagree too much. The mm -hmm. giant dead guy appears behind Yara in, in his white tee and boxers, and again, white, white, and yeah. exposure, exposure. It's always like. The, the the forms of it are either naked or in underwear or in like some, you know, a hospital gown, something that's, you know, like you don't wear outdoors, like uh, um, long johns and in, in a mm -hmm. bit like it's always it's a white item that you should not be on the street in. That's very much the common thread. Yeah, it, it, it makes it uh, uh, vulnerable in a sense, but we also know that it's it's also a demon. And, uh, you know, those kind of two gut reactions are, are kind of pull at each other in a very interesting way because it's always, like you said, it's always, you know, indoor wear or nudity or something along those lines. So, you know, it's breaking a social convention. It's being strange. It's being weird. It's doing something that it shouldn't do. And uh, even even though it might look like a little old lady, it's like a little old lady in a hospital gown in a high school hallway. It's like she doesn't belong there. And you know, we know that something is is you know is tearing at the reality. But by appearing so strange, it makes it that much more dangerous. It's violating rules. But sexuality has to do with, in some ways, exposure and you know, mm -hmm. you know, being in your underwear or being naked. Like it has, it taps into that somehow. Like the the connection of sex passing this on is somehow embodied in the embarrassing quality that its forms take. Well, but I think there's something too, just to the physicalness. The height of that guy is what strikes me so much. Watching him duck to get through the door frame. I mean, he cast a, you know, a, a Todd Browning physical freak in this part. That Apparently, the tallest man in Michigan, by the way. No hmm. kidding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, look, that's what I'm saying. That, that that makes sense. There is a natural, almost physical reaction, revulsion to things that just seem outside of what we expect, outside of the norm. And that is what this guy is. And again, it goes back to when we talk about the nature of it, that it chooses to inhabit something, not just a, not just a guy, not just a tall guy, but someone freakishly tall, someone so large that with just the, the, the makeup around the eyes, I'm actually looking at a close-up of the still frame right now. It's just a lot of dark makeup around his eyes. It, it combines with his sort of natural physical characteristics to become horrifying that it would choose to, to inhabit something so physically unusual, something that draws so much attention to itself, really communicates it wants you to be afraid. Well, it's and almost like insight into what it is. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's almost like it's con- collecting this menagerie of its victims. And that guy stood out to it. You know, so it, it will rotate between people in your life. But then it loves that one because he is different. You know, that one that one matters to it more than it matters to you. Right. So but it likes that form. And that guy somewhere along the line was one of its victims and it will trot him out. I think uh, it also chooses that one because uh, it thinks that it's got Jay quartered. Well, no, wait, so, John, I, is that a given that it is one of its victims? I don't know that it's a given. I mean, because clearly it takes the form of people that it hasn't killed, like yeah. Yara. I kind of assumed, though, like you see a bit of a story usually with the ones that are not like the girl that in the kitchen, you know, with the sock and all that. Like, I don't think it just like picked those things and threw them together. You know, like I, I had the, the the strong feeling from the specifics of that girl with her, you know, her teeth broken and all that. It's not mm-hmm. like looking in the mirror in some, you know, alternate realm being like, oh, yeah, I'll. You know, I'll I'll knock the teeth out and I'll have her piss. Like I feel like that was that was somebody. You know, mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. part of the. It's it's just recycling these these previous victims and and people yeah. that it, it has encountered. It's I've, never brought up in, in in exposition or dialogue or anything in the in the mythology, but the specis. Yeah. Okay. Five, I've had five. That, of these that's things. a tough one for specific- vodka drinkers. What um, I'm curious, John, yeah. is does that imply then that the 80-year-old woman, I'm, I'm making up the age, but that the elderly woman in the early scene in the college, is she someone who followed Mike's plan, who flew from London to Tokyo to Sydney, whatever, lived as long a life as she could, but eventually wound up in a hospital where she couldn't get away? I mean, you could do the It Follows verse, where each of these forms could probably be a great little short film or a short story or whatever you... I For you, I'm, I'm curious because, again, you trotted that out like it was an assumption that you had made in the film. Is that what you assume is the is sort of the backstory for that woman? Because yeah. I don't think she's had sex recently. You don't think people get it on in uh, in nursing homes? Or, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just saying it's like a, there, there, there are such specific forms that it's not like... Yeah, I, what John's yeah. trying to say it's it's not like you know just some dude. It's like the you know the 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 makeup and the person in the in the wardrobe is so specific that it, it you know just at a glance you're immediately thinking there's a story there. And if yeah. there's a story there and it is involved, then we have to assume that it's a former victim. So you know, once again, the the movie puts us in the place of the of the characters within the movie where we don't know, so we can just kind of guess. Uh, I mean, if John had caught it and he had, and he'd tie some girl to a wheelchair and he's explaining everything, he might be like, you know, it. I think it takes a form of former victims, uh, sort of, maybe. I mean, I guess, but it yeah. also takes a form of people that you know. So be careful about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's by the way. By the way, I'm, I'm not taking that from articles I've read or you know, yeah, like, no. I just that's and that's the great thing about this movie is I believe it just kind of lends itself to whatever interpretation that you want to bring to it. And it, it, it is ambiguous. And the, the best movies just like they invite you to think and draw your own conclusions. In terms of the camel work, I noticed uh, two major things. The one is it's very languid. 
It's a very languid camera. Uh, it likes to float around, uh, and it's it's just one more thing that kind of gives the movie as a whole, you know, kind of the dreamlike elements uh, that we've talked about. It's never super cutty, and it's never rushed, even when there's um, you know, a, a chase elements. You know, a lot of times the camera will will lock itself down, or else it'll move very slowly, and it's allowed to move very slowly, and even actiony kind of beats because it keeps wide shots as often as possible. Every once in a while, it'll go close to pull your focus to an interesting detail, like uh, you know, Jay playing with the weed. But very, very often, it keeps the, those shots as wide as possible. Again, because it's trained you to look for it in the background. And so even when it's doing something that on paper is a little dry, like a dialogue or exposition, there's still a creeping sense of dread. It doesn't have to be there to still be present. And all the camera does is just keep the frame wide. Because uh, even when it's not pulling your focus, it gives you, the viewer, the agency to, to scan around. You know, you're, it, it puts the audience in the place of prey, scanning the horizon for a predator. Where's the lion? Where's the lion in the weeds? It's subtle in some ways, but I, you know, I've watched this movie you know, three, four times now, and I really hooked into that the last time I was watching. I'm like, God, it's, it's, it's so smart. The camera is very, very much a character, I mean, and it's consistent enough that it's not by accident. It's very obviously a clear choice. And man, I mean, in its, you know, we, we could say that cuttier, more moving camera work is a lot flashier and uh, is, you know, g- g- gets a lot more attention. But I think that, you know, when you're just using the camera to tell your story and make your, your movie as, as effective as possible, even when it's just like locked down and wide or just very languidly panning back and forth, it's still, you know, Excellent direction. Dude, I fucking love the way that the camera is used in this film. Well, I, I would argue it's pretty showy. Love it or hate it, there's some really, really conspicuous camera work in this movie. I think it wor- it absolutely invites the viewer to have engaged with the story and draw their own conclusions, which is kind of one of the big, I guess, you know, through lines or recurring, recurring themes of our conversation is that movie definitely invites you to read into this as you may and it keeps you on your toes and i absolutely love movies like this some people you know they they want things to be a little more um clear i guess but Mm -hmm. you know so i agree with you in the sense that overall the film is sort of inviting you to be your own uh spectator and you know you have to read you have to pay attention to what's going on in the image and i absolutely love that in the pool house scene, uh, it's it's worthy of note that the tall guy comes back. Um, but overall, like I want to throw out here and see what you guys think, that I think the film kind of loses propulsion here. We spend a lot of time with the characters just sort of hanging around, and thus, of course, we are as well. Um, we had set up the idea that, like, okay, so she needs to, Jay needs to find Hugh slash Jeff, his real name, and, you know, get some answers. And she does that pretty easily. And he contributes mm-hmm. what he what he can contribute. So it's like, all right, now what? So obviously there's still some dread knowing that it's coming. But 
we've we've really lost the thread of all right what is our protagonist going to do and instead we're just kind of hanging around waiting for it to show up again it's um reactive yeah for me when they get to the lake we get it coming up behind her as yara uh, and sort of grabbing her hair and then Paul hits it and it hits Paul and it's, you know, it becomes this effects heavy kind of action scene or whatever else. This was the first time for me in which I really internalized that this thing was a an invisible corporeal form, right? Like it's the predator. Nobody can right. see it, but it's there. It has physical form. You can hit it with a chair. If you threw an egg at it, it would look like an egg. I mean, you almost – again, this is part of my problem when it gets to the scene in the pool at the end is – didn't somebody throw a flower on it? Like there's a there's – They throw a you know, blanket over it. Exactly. But that's what I mean. But there's a there's a, a hundred other iterations of that that I feel like are smarter if you, you know, if you really put your head to the fact that there is a physical form. And I remember distinctly on my first time watching this, when we got to that scene, when it grabbed her hair, when Paul hit it and it hit him and you came to this revelation, this was not, yes, it's a demon. Yes, it is supernatural, but it is, it is physical. It has, you know, it has form. It has substance. It has, it is, it is composed of some kind of cells or something. Well, it takes a bullet in this scene. Uh, it, exactly. She she, uh, she shoots it in the neck and it, it drops mm-hmm. and, you know, almost instantly gets right back up, which mm-hmm. is important when you look at the pool scene and yeah. compare these two and scenes. Why, well, but I just felt like coming out of that scene, I thought that was a mistake. Yeah. When it was an indefinable entity in closing in on her, it was scary. It was scarier. But right. once it became a person, a physical entity person uh, that could be hit with chairs and things and covered in flour and everything else, mm-hmm. then it became less frightening. But I also don't know how you fix that because I feel like you've got to – at some point in this movie, you've got to come down on one side or the other. Yeah. And you're going to hurt yourself either way. Yeah, that, that corporeality gives uh, the characters something to do and thereby gives them like some proactivity. I mean, otherwise, it's it's nothing but reactivity. You're just lying around waiting to die. Uh, you know, by making it physical, you, you introduce the idea that the characters can do something to it and thereby gives, you know, at least Act 3, you know, that much more energy. Because I, as John pointed out, if you don't have... Uh, physicality, then you don't have any plans that you can make against it. And if you don't have any plans that you can make against it, then the characters are just slumping around and we're bored by the film. But at the same time, it's an indestructible corporeality. So in many ways, it is something that will uh, give you just enough hope, just enough illusion that you can do something about it, quote unquote. But all of your efforts will be to naught. Uh, again, it is the, uh, you know, you can exercise and eat right and avoid fried foods, but eventually you're going to die anyways. You know, <laughs> in a way, it's corporeality is a tease. It's a taunt. It's not a, it's, it's, it's not a bug. It's a feature. When it comes for Greg, I love that Jay is looking out the window. Uh, she sees it walk down the street. And uh, it's his mom in her nightgown, inside clothes, bedroom clothes, literally. Uh, it takes a rock and throws it through a window. No, first it tries the door. We notice that it will try the door first. 
Uh, it drives the front door, doesn't get it, smashes out the window, crawls through. No music, by the way, which I also love. It grounds this beat very nicely. So Jay runs across the street, and like I've said, I have two quibbles about this movie. The first was we missed that beat with Jeff uh, upon initial reaction. My other quibble with this film is Jay tries the door. She she sees that the that it tried the front door <laughs> and it's locked. Yeah. And she comes to the rescue. She tries the front. Not only does she try the front door that she has already established with her eyes <laughs> that it's locked, but what does she do? She slaps it. She slaps that fucking door. And it's like it, it, there's one thing that drives me nuts in any movie, but horror movies in particular is people slapping doors. Yeah, noticed. It, I noticed it, that it, as well. So, uh, yeah, the guy, as you mentioned, he's wearing long johns, in this case, white long johns coming down the sidewalk, which is a dead giveaway, but his gait is casual. Um, and he's clearly a man with slightly long hair. Now, I've seen this movie twice in the theater. I have heard people say that this appears to be Greg, and she thinks that it is Greg. That is not mm. my read. Did you guys get any any whiff of that? Oh, for a second, I did think that. Yeah. 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 I mean, it could be because we I, never I, get a close I, look I, at it. You know, and it looks like a sleepwalker of some kind is how he sort of reads. I did not think that either she thought he was Greg, um, let alone, you know, the audience is, is meant to think that he's Greg. But in any event, it takes the form of Greg's mom to get him to open the door. And yes, she's in the customary white. And it's a satiny nightdress type of thing, untied. So, of course, we have our third bare boob of the movie for the creature, mm -hmm. uh, which, again, like not a coincidence. That's it's always got this sort of weird, kinky, for a lot of lack of a better word, um, appearance in some way. And she pounces on him like an animal. And there's like a strobe effect, which is mm -hmm. motivated. Like it's there's a light in the room, but. It's it's very heightened, and this is the only time in the film we actually see it in the process of killing someone. And it dispatches Greg very quickly, but it's clearly humping him, however possibly dry humping him. That's mm -hmm. a little hard to tell. And there's a very disturbing shot of hands being held. She's clutching his hand, or he's clutching hers, uh, mm -hmm. covered with a disgusting mucusy slime. There's also a very quick shot of her panties grinding against his crotch. Yeah, but it's she's, a, she's clearly wearing panties. Hyper-sexualized. And I, well, that, that, that's the thing. That's what it does is it breaks taboos. Yeah. It, shocks, it shocks you not with a, a demonic visage, but by breaking taboos. Exactly. Uh, that, it's not only a, a – you know, it, it's a subversion of sexuality in, in all of its forms. You know, it's it's going to make sex horrible. Yeah, yeah, and again, we talked about this last week, or I, I mentioned that that I, I think sex is on some level always a bit scary because of the risks involved and you know the vulnerabilities. And I, I can't think of a movie ever, you know, and we've had plenty of AIDS-related you know films uh, and horror, but like I can't think of a film that captures it the way this does. And 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 for me, that's just a huge selling point. But he, uh, poor Greg, his skin turns instantly gray and he looks like he's been dead for a while uh, as he's, you know, very abruptly killed. And then it turns back into the, the Long John's guy, whether that's supposed to be Greg or someone else, to pursue Jay as she drives away. And 
I got shades of the first scene as then she goes and uh, she drives for however long and then she sleeps on the hood of her car in the, mm-hmm. in, on a road in the woods. I just, that scene with the Greg and his mother to me is a mistake. For this reason, everything that happens in that scene is less horrifying than the things that were in my head hmm. from what happened to the girl in the opening scene. Right. You know, I, I gotcha. What was left. And again, look, I'm not one of those people who says everything you don't see is scarier than what you do see. Look, I, again, we talked about this last time. John Carpenter's the thing is fucking scary and they show you everything. Mm. Right. So yeah. I think you can show us what goes on and have it still work. But that did not fit the bill again for that girl with her leg bent over backwards, her body twisted up like a, a square like a cube that was scarier the things that my brain filled that void with were scarier than what i got in that scene with greg and that's greg is pivotal that's where we were going to get what it what it meant to be caught and if that's what it means to be caught well i don't know it seems like there's worse ways to go (laughs) yeah i mean i I want to say that I mean, again, it, it's different every time it catches you. I let, it, it bends the girl in a really physical and horrible way, and this one, it zaps you and takes your soul. You know, I, it kind of gives you like a, a Sadako treatment. This is part of why I say, again, that the film is on the decline at this point, in that I instinctively agreed with you, and it didn't hurt, or, you know, I, I mean, it reinforced that, that view in the theater that people actually tittered. Um, in that scene, it's a nervous titter. And sometimes anything like this is that might be a natural reaction. But I, I do think that the scene misses the mark in some way, no matter how much you love the movie, it's a bit silly and and it is a bit reductive, you know, like, yeah, it boils down what this thing does to you in a way that shows you very explicitly. And there's nothing that that special about it it's kind of okay well uh wow like it's edited quickly and obviously the incest angle is disturbing but that's about all all it really does and i do think that in some way it it limits your your imaginations um you know range of possibilities Vic. even though if you want to as Mike does, you know, like hold out the the belief that this is just one of many uh, kills. Uh, the way that you know Jason Voorhees will, you know, use a um, um, a, a, a noisemaker to to punch out your eye in one moment, and well, death comes in many forms. Right, and if exactly. This thing is the personification of death, and it's like every victim is going to get it in some different way. But it's very sexual, and I think that that does load the deck in that, like. All the, this whole movie and its various forms, as I've um, detailed, have a, a sexuality to them. It's very easy to ascribe perhaps too much meaning to this particular kill and say, oh, okay, so that's what it does to you, as, as Vic just said. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's not an uh, unfair reading, is to just sure. say, okay, so that's what happens. Gotcha. So I don't, I don't love it. Anyway... Uh, the, there's the party boat with the dudes and Jay Grimley strips down to swim out there. And I actually kind of, I don't remember now why, but my notes say darkly funny <laughs> and then maybe fresh tears Jesus, on her Jesus, face. John? Yeah. I'm, 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 a, I'm a twisted son of a bitch. 
I did wonder how easily this is swim with a cast on your arm. Yeah, the, the cast is a bone of contention for a lot of people in that like there's some continuity errors and sometimes it's a cast and sometimes it's bandages and yeah, I don't know. But in any event, there's possibly fresh tears on her face as she drives home or she could be just wet because water is her special place and she went out to swim because we know that's where she gets herself centered. Who knows? The pool in the backyard is now empty, sagging and damaged. Uh, her childhood is lost to her. The same sandwich is sitting on the plate with the chips in her room that we saw uh, a long time ago. And there's mold in the center of the bread now. That's all richly evocative for the aging motifs and just the loss of uh, childhood and innocence and security. The pervy kid on the bike shows up, the, the, the little kid, and just watches them. Uh, doesn't move. Uh, again, kind of in the background. It's very creepy uh, at this point. And, you know, by now, maybe that's a clue that it is the kid version of, of it that we saw earlier. We get the naked dude on the roof, uh, which yeah. is a little, 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 it's very effective, but you kind of do wonder, well, why is he on the roof? Is that the right. direct path to, to her or I don't know. So then Paul hatches this idea, um, which we don't get the details, of course, until they get to the pool. Um, but. You know, and they're on the offensive, which I, I think, again, like back to classical pacing and structure, we need that they're on the offensive. And but at the same time, what about this makes them think that it's vulnerable to electricity? We haven't seen anything like that. You know, like it's there's no clue that would give them the um, the idea to do this. Well, I, I think that they're they don't know anything, so they're just going to experiment. And and if the idea is like, okay, if you shoot it, it falls down, then it's it's physically reactive to outside stimuli. Thereby, it's like if you didn't if you were fighting a vampire and you didn't have the lore at your disposal, if you didn't have a von Helsing to act as Professor Exposition, then you would try different shit. It's like, okay, well, I beat it up and it came back the next day. All right, I chopped off its head. It came back. Yeah, but what if I set? What if I set on fire? It's and not. Then, it's not it's played gone. that way. It's not played that way. It's. Eh. It, it, it. He has an idea. We don't know what the idea is. We see them making preparations. We see a master plan. We see the master plan play out, and it's like, where the fuck did you get that? You know, like it's well, given, know, it's, it's like, given it, weight. It's given. Yeah, weight. I, I, I guess, but it's kind of like a look at the end of nightmare on Elm street. You know, it's like, I, how did Nancy know that, you know, I mean, she's given the clue when she pulls out Freddie's hat, but I mean, how does she know for a fact know, but, that but, you can but, pull but him off a dream and hit him with trap traps and stuff like that. And like, that's, that's how you, you know, I, I, I disagree though. That's exactly why the climax of, a Nightmare on Elm Street works better than this. Nancy's plan is a good plan, and this is not a good plan. It's a plan. Mm-hmm. And and you're right that there's a sense in which, look, like if you're going to draw this movie to a close, if you're going to give your characters agency, if you're going to have them sort of seek to take control of this situation, then they have to come up with a plan. They come up with a plan. It's just not a good plan. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is, like I said, it's, if, if, if I'm them, I've got a bag of flour that I throw over the thing so that I can see it. You know what I mean? Or, or you know, and then you can electrocute it. Then you can shoot it a hundred times. Then you can tie it up and lock it in the in a closet or whatever. There's a hundred things you come up with to do it. 
Um, but I mean, I, I give them a lot of uh, a pass in that, like I said before, like these are, you know, for lack of a better term, dumb kids. You know, they're, they're yeah, normal yeah. kids. And so I get that. And, and it, it is kind of like directly acknowledging what I'm saying when uh, the, the thing, it throws shit into the pool with jay in the pool and i think it's yarrow's like oh good glad that didn't work i mean i'm right, right, yeah, but yeah, she's like yeah. you know glad that we were dead wrong about like about how electricity works with water because otherwise our friend would be fucking dead right now mm-hmm. um and and so they're you know they're very much reacting on the fly to the complete failure of this plan but i mean like it's the movie is kind of having its cake and eating it too, because in the way that we don't hear Paul's um, plan and we see the preparations and the music and we're like, okay, act three set piece. Here we go. You know, like it's very much playing with the grammar and expectations of this kind of scene. And the plan is so fucking ridiculous Mm -hmm. that like it, it, it undercuts itself tremendously without, you know, entirely, um, acknowledging its own stupidity so i think that uh that's part of the charm i see i i find the entire thing very charming and i I did find that scene harrowing the first time that i was watching i'm like oh shit they kind of fucked up and now they're in a room with this thing it's like oh no you know uh and i I think i I think ultimately the movie real and like you pointed out the movie still kind of trundles along for a while after this you know kind of quote-unquote climax I think because I ultimately the the movie narratively has to give these characters something to do and has to give the audience scenes like this so they have a story to watch. But it's not what the movie is ultimately about. It's not about squad tactics. It's about the scariness of young sex. You know, so it's like, sure. I don't know. It's like they, they try to do something that doesn't work out. It's like, I so some people can roll their eyes and call it pointless, but uh, I don't know. Like, I, I I think that ultimately it feeds into the, the dread of this monster. It's like, would you're it, not going to stop it. Would it have been worse if in the lake house, and this is, you know, somebody in one of the podcasts that I listened to talking about this movie brought this up. Like, if it had shied away from a, a wire or something, like there right. was, you know, some indication that, oh, maybe – Maybe it doesn't like electricity. Maybe, you know, it reacted to a live wire or something like that. Like, would that have weakened the film? I think so, because I, I mean, it pushes it from this very uh, dreamy, dreadful place into something closer to Predator. It can't see me, you know? That's, yeah. That's, guys, that's what, I, that's what I would say, though, again, when I talk about the grudge and that idea of sadistic inevitability is that it's not that you have to give the bad guy a weakness. Like this is – structurally this is sound. But if they have a smart plan – I mean again, if they're going to – I'm just gonna, I'm, without having put a ton of thought into this, they're going to cover it in, in paint so that they can see it. And then there's going to be a closet or something that they steal closet that they can lock it in because it's because now we know it's corporeal and we know it can do it. And then you lock it in there and you discover that it, it can't possibly be contained by something like that. So it's See, not that so- makes a lot of sense, Vic, because from what we know about the mythology, it's entirely possible that it could not get out of there because it's a fucking physical thing that walks. Exactly. It's a, but so that's my point. So if, if the characters come up with something that makes sense and that 
they, you can see why they put their stock in it and it gives them hope. And then what you do in your climax is take that hope away. Mm. That is the that is the sadism that becomes horrifying. How the does problem, that how is that a worse this, movie, you know? What's that? Again, I'm just saying like if if we went down that road, how is that a worse movie? I, I see what you're saying. The the idea that if we're gonna underline the fact that there's no getting rid of it, that there's no true beating it up or solving it or making the curse go away, if we make the plan as rock solid as possible and it's still proven to be hopeless then it's like oh shit like you know you can drop drop a moab on this thing it doesn't matter you're still just as fucked as you were yesterday i understand i want to give you credit for dropping moab into the uh into the podcast that's dude i'm i'm dropping moab i'm dropping moabs baby (laughs) (laughs) well anyway the the scene ends and i think it's you know before we can really move on from this to the the true denouement um the a bullet a bullet in the head seems to resolve this situation where uh paul is firing and i i have to give i mean the directing and the editing everything is great like the suspense is she's swimming in the water and it's underneath her and it's clutching at her legs and it's got her by the ankle and and paul is you know he can't see it and he's just firing blind and he's already shot yara in the leg and like there's great suspense here it's very well done and mm-hmm. and and there's like a wonderful moment of catharsis when like you see the bullet go through its head and it, it kind of goes limp and lets her go and floats to the bottom and you know on some level we've set it up because like it's reacted to gunshots before but i believe that the mythology kind of whatever rules we have break completely with this, you know, shining-esque blood cloud in the water, which is, you know, strong image, but the apparent disintegration of it, which immediately cuts to them um, having sex, Paul and Jay, it's like, oh, okay, so it disappeared because you shot it in the head. Again, I have problems with that. Like a zombie. Yes. Instead of a stick through the heart or, uh, or, uh, you know, any other esoteric thing, it's, it's, it's weakness is bullets. It's yeah. allergic to bullets. It bled when you, when it takes the shot in the neck at the lake house, there's a, I mean, you can see the blood spray. So to me, it's, that's again, it's a, it's a lens to what I find unsatisfying about the scene is, so you shot it and blood came out. You already knew that that's hardly indicative of it being gone. Um, but it, apparently it is gone because they pack up their shit and they go home. I mean, it's sort of an editing or a narrative cheat the way yeah. we, we jump out of this scene. Well, yeah. I, I think they cut to the characters having sex because they know that it's temporary. Well, that that would make sense. But at the same time, like, did they know that it's temporary because he climbed out of the pool when they left? Or did he actually disappear for a while? And why would he disappear? You know, like, I just feel like it's this is where we're taking advantage of of being subtle or or vague and and pushing it a a, a little too far. Mm. You hit it. It's Is it subtle or is it vague? I think it's vague. <laughs> yeah, it's vague. Right? <laughs> yeah. All right, so Paul finally gets what he wants, and he's just lying there passively as she rides him, and um, he's not apparently taking any pleasure in it. Where she seems, 
Huh? He's hanging on for dear life, dude. Yeah. Just give give Paul a little bit of credit, all right? <laughs> well, she seems a little bit into it. I don't know. She's making yeah. some little sounds. He's, and, he's, and he's just trying to get to seven minutes. <laughs> so she initiated it, and we're not quite sure why this is happening. Like, we don't necessarily know, again, just based on what we just saw, you know, because, like, there's a blood cloud and then they leave. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's dead. I don't know. Um, it could be unrelated. You know, maybe she's just decided you're my boyfriend now. Cause we've been through this fucking experience and you were a stand up right. guy and you came up with some cool ideas and you stood by mm-hmm. me, you know, could be. And so then they, they have a, a great push in with the camera to the rain on the window and the backyard. And it makes you really think, you know, like oh, we're still looking for this thing in the background of every shot, uh, which is great. So then, uh, do you feel any different? Paul asks her. And it makes you wonder kind of what he's talking about exactly, because he knows that she's passed it on to at least one other person at this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he could have asked her that then. Um, and clearly, you know, it didn't resolve anything how she felt or didn't feel. So it's weird. It's, it, this is one of those cool ambiguities, because it, like, to me, it's more like they're talking about the normal context of this. Like, right. You know, what does this change? between you and I and he she's of course says no doesn't she doesn't yeah. feel different it's part of the curse too is it corrupts your morality because you have to do this terrible thing in order to save your own skin for a little bit and it also corrupts every word and act within the sexual uh, experience you know yeah. it's like everything that you say is loaded in some way uh, you you never know if you're having a normal conversation or not Absolutely. And I, I, I think that, again, it's like even when it isn't on camera, its presence remains. For as much as I sat here and tore apart the previous scene, I fucking love that. I love this scene. I love when he says, do you feel any different? I mean, that is it's so loaded with subtext and different connotations. And what does it mean? It's that it, it's the it's the culmination of everything that is great about this movie in that scene about sex and relationships and, and teenagers and horror and death. And it's all just summed up in that line. Do you feel any different? I, it, it even ties into virginity somehow, even though we yes, know she's yes, not a virgin. That's what I mean. It ties into everything. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. No, no doubt about it. Now, here's another one of those scenes like her um, stripping down, you know, and jumping into the water with the boat out there. Like you could read this next scene any way you want. And I, I again, I, I think ultimately that's to the film's credit. Paul is driving and he sees two hookers standing on the on the uh, corner and he slows mm-hmm. down. He's clearly tempted, but you can very much read that he's tempted but doesn't do it and he keeps on driving. Or you could say this is clearly an option that they are exploring and it might be part of their solution to this. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. It's, it's exactly like Jay and the boat. The movie is, is brave enough to kind of throw out scenes that, that go kind of unresolved. It's like they, they, for all we know, there are entire scenes that follow our cut, but you know, the, the movie leaves it out. It leaves it to you to, to decide what happened. I love that. Absolutely. Well, I, think it's, I think it's crucial, too, because it fills one of the, if you'll forget the pun, it fills one of those gaps of, like, this is what I would do if it happened to me. Right. But, I, I, but because she's a hooker, she would immediately 
pass it on pass. to other people. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a really logical course of action. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is crucial, again, that's missing from lots, from sort of large sections of the, of the third act. Yeah, you know, I can see here's the thing. Instead of the whole New York Shanghai thing, you know what you do is, uh, or or the whole swimming pool electricity thing, you lure this thing out to Nevada, out to the Bunny Ranch, and and you know it, it's it's bouncing in so many different directions that it's like you know things kind of get whiplash, you know. Eventually, well, it, it'll, it'll it doesn't just get frustrated. It doesn't get work. frustrated and lie down and to go to sleep. <laughs> It's going to have a smoke and, and take a nap. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't sleeps. work, though. If, if, if you were to – yeah, it sleeps. Is that what you said? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it takes a break. <laughs> it wallows. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, if you, if you think it through, if he gives it to that hooker and that hooker gives it to her next John – her next John might give it to his wife or another hooker, but chances are within like the time that it takes it to catch up, it's probably going to get him and then it's probably going to get come right back to the hooker. You know, like it, it, the only way to really do it is if she gives it to another hooker and then that hooker gives it to another hooker and they're just having sex with like, you really try to extrapolate how many partners you need to have to really keep it away. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not even like in a gangbang porno kind of a situation. It really is only a couple of moves and it's back to whoever gave it to the promiscuous person, you know, right, well, right. that's, the, that's the ultimate, again, that's the ultimate revelation that you arrive at, which leads you to sit on a beach and wait for it to fucking kill you. Yeah. But I think that if you're in that situation, one of the, one of the things that certainly popped into my head is give it to someone who's going to fuck as many people as possible. Hey, let let me ask you guys this. Is the girl in the opening scene the girl from the bar that Hugh got it from? No, because Hugh would have had to have been dead before it got back to her. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That that occurred to me is is my point. No, I think, which, by the way, incidentally, sort of leads you to think that she must have been someone that Hugh gave it to. Yeah. And then it came back to him. And it got her and came back to Hugh. And that is when Hugh ultimately winds up finding Jay. It seems pretty obvious that Hugh's M.O. is to prey on younger girls with the fact that I'm 21 and I got a house and blah, 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 you know, and it's all kind of an act. So anyway, uh, the third hospital scene in the movie, which, by the way, I think might be a record. I, I can't think of any other movies with three hospital scenes that aren't, you know, set in a hospital. And so well, do you, do, you th- do, you, do you think there's a motif there or is it just repetition? I don't think thinks that it has like it seems kind of extraneous in the sense that like i don't know that medicine or other than the fact that like you you come to grips with your mortality when you are in the hospital but yeah this time it's yara and not the previous two times it's jay who's in the hospital bed um and we we definitely get some thematic clarity in this excerpt that she reads and I, I, I touched on it last time, but, you know, she's talking about the certainty of death and the proximity of death and not being a person anymore and no longer existing. And that's, you know, that's the worst awareness that a person can have, like to have to wrestle with the certainty that, oh, yeah, you know, like not only is my time, my days are numbered 
I can, I can, I have some sense of how long that is and, and how horrible that is to, to have to accept. So from there, we have the holding hands on the sidewalk scene, which is, you know, you could definitely argue that this is uh, an upbeat ending on some level. I think visually it reads that way in that, you know, Paul and Jay have some sense of normalcy. They're, you know, walking the street the way that Jay and her sister did earlier. Mm-hmm. And we have the clear sense that someone is pursuing them. Uh, but again, like reading the the symbology or the code, the visual code of the film, the person who's pursuing them is wearing a white shirt, but clearly other clothes, jeans and a coat, multiple other colors doesn't fit the profile. I read it as their paranoia or part of their sense that they'll never never not be followed or not believe that they are followed. But I think you could like the, the ax does not feel right at their, at their throats in this final image. And I believe that it ultimately is an upbeat ending. I think it's kind of one of those things that like the, the grammar of, of the scene can lead you either way. Like I, I personally felt that it was a tenuously, hopeful ending but there was definitely a a, we're left with a sense of lingering darkness and dread uh if there's any one scene that i found to be a spiritual cousin was the uh ending shot of of the graduate huh that's funny i so my my spiritual cousin to it would be the ending of john carpenter's the thing Mm -hmm. um I find this ending horrifying because I think that what it suggests is that maybe it's still coming after them and maybe it's not. But if you don't know, what's the difference? Hmm. Well, I, I disagree in the sense that the end of, of the thing is these guys having maybe a half an hour to live, you know, like whether or not well, one of them is it or not. Agree, but it but it ends with this sense of ambiguity of maybe one of us is it and maybe it isn't, but whether we know or not, what's the difference? To me, this bleak. There's there is there is no there is no happiness. Even if they're both human, there there is no happiness. Even if they actually did get rid of it, it doesn't matter. They'll never be able to relax. They'll never know that it's not coming for them. Yeah, but part of this film, what its whole message to us is this, there is no escape, but if you have someone to wash your back and someone to share this with and to love, potentially, it makes it a hell of a lot easier. And they have that. Like, Mm -hmm. however, they didn't mean to, certainly she didn't mean to get with this guy. And yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, he's gotten a really fucked up version of what he wanted, you know? So like, this is not a happy ending, quote unquote. Right, right, right. At the same time, like, this is about as good as it gets. They're like, we're one step ahead of death. And you know what? We've got each other and it's not right here. So could be worse. We've seen a lot worse. And I think that that on some level, that is you know, about as hopeful or as, you know, like a good of way to navigate life and death as, as you're going to get. And, and not only that, they've come to terms with it. Like they have, they have matured to the point where they're in acceptance and knowledge of the realities of life and death. So to me, I, I think that, yeah, they're like, it's not solved. They're not going to live forever. Yes, it is still after them, but they have reached a point that they can they can cope with it, and I, I think that that is that speaks to all of us as we go through this 
often terrifying experience that is called life that ultimately hmm. ends in death. I had an amusing thought that, uh, it, John, you had talked about if you were in a committed relationship as Jay and Paul are at, at this point in the movie. And then, so that every time they have sex, they're essentially just giving the curse back and forth to one another. So what if like just Paul was keeping tabs on who had the curse? And so like, at the point he turns around and sees it coming and it's like, all right, see ya. And like just bolt because you know, <laughs> because that's, it's true. You'd be like, wait, did I pass it to you just now? Or did you pass it to me? And after yeah. like you have sex 25, 30 times, it could be easy to be like, wait, whose turn is it? Yeah. <laughs> well, when he's ready to break up with her, <laughs> that'll be yeah, really easy. Just, just, <laughs> dude, if, if, so someone should write an app. <laughs> so we, we should end with uh, at least like a, a very brief discussion of where you would want a, a sequel to go. And I, I do think that it's interesting that, you know, as successful as this movie was, you know, clearly for whatever reason, we don't have a sequel right now. And I, you know, you could wonder as to why that is. But for now, let's just say like if, if we were working on a sequel, which take would you be most interested in seeing? To me, I mean, what it, it does not follow, let's say, narratively or... Uh, it does not follow? I'm not sure this is the, the natural narrative extension of it, but the what leaps out at me, and we, we've discussed it sort of briefly, is the journey like if you could follow someone again back to you could follow um if you could follow someone who had this and raced with it for ages mm, you know, like decades if you watch jay live with this and live with it and live with it and watch the the weight that it took on her and the way that it wore on her and the nightmares that she had and the the way that you would never rest, that you would never relax, that you would always know, even from the, you know, again, from the, from the first night that you landed in Tokyo, that you were haunted, that this thing was coming for you, that you were cursed. Um, how could you have a good night's sleep, you know, really? How would you, ever, how would you ever have a good night's sleep? And again, if you if you told that story, again, almost as just a psychological degradation um, when you, when you extrapolate out from that as a fictional story of someone who's cursed to what it means for you and me and everybody else to live every day of our lives, knowing that death is coming for us just as surely, I yeah. think there are some profound implications to that version of it and what it does to that person psychologically versus what it does to us. Here's the, it follows two that I would want to see made would be the ice storm version of it follows. Hmm. Hmm. Well, elaborate on that in which you, you have uh, okay. We have Jay and Paul and now they are older and now they're, they're middle-aged and they're amongst these, uh, these burnt out middle-aged people who have been married and they're, they're becoming sexually adventurous in this very fumbling way because you know they, their own uh, sexual relationships have run dry 
and um, you know, there's a cynicism to it, and there's a, a tiredness to it, but there's also like a hope that maybe we, by getting kinky, we can rediscover a spark and you know, a realization that sex really is, you know, kind of a glue that you know often holds you know relationships together, uh, at least on, on some level. So it's like you know, if it becomes like this kind of dark, cynical, you know, sad, but you know, also hopeful, the ice storm, that excruciating key party scene. Oh yeah, is horrifying. To That's watch. one of my and, favorite movies, by the way. One yeah, of my and, and, and and okay, take take the ice storm and plop a murderous ghost into the middle of that, and I think you have a fucking good movie. Well, I, I have the benefit of getting to be third in this, um, you know, like order of people throwing out their takes, so I, I get to steal from both of you because I I didn't really have an answer, but I think it's become clear to me that the two things that would make it work, like either path and Mike, I think you just combine them, which, which is great. But like, I think the odd horror sequel that actually, again, sorry, no pun intended follows the original protagonist. Like in really it's no, oh no, it's not just about this mythology. Like we really want to go with Jay. We want to see where Jay is like five years from now, 10 years from now, whatever. And I think that this character and this series, like that actually would lend itself to that, that, that we, we could stay with her, but then conversely, what would make it different and really interesting would be to drop it into a completely different phase of life. You know, like this is the, this is the coming of age version of it. But yeah, like you said, Mike, like what if it shows up amongst middle-aged sexually repressed people? Like how would that play out so differently than this film? That's what I want to see in a sequel is it dropped into a completely different milieu and a different social and thematic landscape. And so you could, yeah, you could potentially combine those two things. And personally, I would like to see that. Well, let's get cracking. All right. The sequel will actually just be, they follow. It'll just be the same movie, but with like three people instead of one. Yeah. That that would definitely be a possibility. I I have to say that I, I read that follow it was one of the potential um, titles that I, I guess one of the producers or someone at the studio or something uh, threw out there. And, and that, that does have a nice symmetry to it. I also want to say just for the pure housekeeping purposes, I don't know how I missed uh, that. This was a dimension film last time I was like, what it is. Um, but I, I didn't notice that in the front of the film. So um, I well, guess because it was, re- it was released by radius, which is a right. kind of subsidiary. Right, right, right. And I think that that just, you know, like there's like three or four of those little production company animations at the front of the movie. And I missed that the dimension was one of them. So in any event, guys, this has been a true pleasure as always. And, uh, you know, I, I'm really glad we tackled this movie. I think, Mike, you mentioned on a couple of previous podcasts, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that I have wanted to do this film since we've been doing uh, our podcast. And I'm really glad that we could we could get around to it. Scratch the itch. All right. Uh, adios, everyone. And uh, we'll be back soon, I hope, with uh, another very interesting film. And um, be safe. Till next time, everybody. Watch out for the thing in the closet. Bye. Bye.